A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is brought to you by audible.com. My recommendation today is The Vikings, part of the Great Lectures series. Get it for free right now at audibletrial.com forward slash tbcritic. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 116, Beyond the Danube. Today we look north to the peoples of the steppe lands who've played a peripheral but occasionally vital role in our narrative. The Magyars, Pechenegs, Rus and Khazars. These peoples don't have written histories that cover the 9th century, so this won't be an episode filled with names and dates. Instead it will be about putting these people on the map and in position for the roles they'll play throughout the next century. But before we begin, I need to deal with an issue that several listeners have brought to my attention. Pronunciation. I've had two guiding principles when it comes to this issue. One is that I would continue Mike Duncan's pronunciation of names and places. This show is meant to provide a continuation of his. And the second is that I've stuck to what I perceive to be the most obvious and well-known, Anglicization of key words. Constantinople is a very famous place name, even though no character on this podcast would ever have used it. And I've extended that principle to words which have caused more controversy, like the Bulgar Khan Krum and the future Hungarians, the Magyars. Uh, Several listeners have pointed out that in the national tongues of both modern peoples, the Khan should be closer to Krum and the Hungarians, Mogyas. I'm more than happy to pass on these corrections to you all, but I will be sticking to their anglicized versions. My reasoning is that this podcast is designed with native English speakers in mind. It caters to their way of thinking first, and when I see the name K-R-U-M on paper, I read Crumb. I don't want someone who is sampling the podcast for the first time to be bewildered by unfamiliar names and places. I feel they're more likely to give the show a chance if they hear words they recognize. If I open the door to pronouncing words more closely to how the descendants of those people say them, I think the show will grind to a halt. Every time I use the word tachmata, I slow my natural rhythm of speech and I think the show will suffer 
if I spend time tracking down every Arabic, Armenian, and European name and attempt to do justice to their tongue. And I do appreciate how frustrating this is for those of you who are Hungarian, Bulgarian, or just better travelled than me. I know when I see bad English accents in films or TV shows, I find that distracting. So please do accept my apologies and try to understand why I've made this decision. I don't want to promote ignorance, but I do want to communicate the story as clearly as possible. I'm also aware that I may seem hypocritical because I've allowed so many Greek words into the show. Again, for obvious reasons, I've allowed the Byzantines' own language to gain some ground, but only for technical words like Anatolikon and Thrakision, where there is no equivalent in English. And when I first saw those words, I had no particular guide as to how to say them. I have also allowed words like Stratikos and Vasilevs through because I am desperate when writing the episodes for synonyms for words like general and emperor. And I just want you to know that even with Greek, I draw the line about what words to ignore and uh, which to pronounce uh, in an anglicized way, so that Nicephorus, the general logothete, does not become Nikiforos logothetis and become a distraction. Know that I sympathize. Accept my decision. Please. We'll start with the Khazars, as we've known them the longest. And, as you know, they've been the dominant steppe power in the lands north of the Black Sea for the past 300 years. They played a vital role in Heraclius' famous victory over the Persians, and their ongoing battles with the Caliphate drew significant forces away from Anatolia. During the 8th century, those two sides traded some very nasty blows. But by 800 AD, the major fighting was done. Each side had accepted the status quo and moved on to other concerns. The Khazars were in decline. In a cycle familiar to students of steppe tribes, their success had made them soft. The brutal life of poor nomads had been replaced by wealth and luxury. The Khazars had settled down to enjoy the fruits of their success. Throughout the ninth century, their elites lived increasingly sedentary lives and hired mercenary forces to fight for them. Part of the reason that the war with the Caliphate ceased was that trade with the Islamic world had become very lucrative. The two most valuable items were slaves and fur. Both were taken from the forests of modern Russia, which lay to the north of Khazar territory. Even in the warm Arab world, fur was highly prized, both as a source of heat in winter and as a status symbol. The animals of the north were hunted and trapped, their furs removed and sold down the Russian river system to the Khazars. Their capital of Attil controlled access to the Caspian Sea, which then leads directly to Iran and the mountain passes down to Baghdad. By 900, the Khazars had grown very rich from this exchange, and in theory, there's nothing wrong with putting your feet up in the palace and paying others to police your realm. 
This is, of course, how the Romans and Arabs run their empires. However, the world of the steppes was very different from that of the Mediterranean. There were no mountains or deserts to protect the Khazar realm. The endless sea of tribes stretching all the way back to China could not easily be held at bay. New arrivals either had to be driven off or incorporated into the tribal system of the Khanate. In the grasslands, if you couldn't command the toughest horse archers around, then you were vulnerable to those who did. During the 9th century, the Magyars, Pechenegs and Rus would all break from Khazar control. And by 950 AD, the Khanate will be no more. Broken for good, replaced by their more ruthless neighbours. Such was the way of the steppes. The first of these groups to gain independence were the Magyars. They seem to have begun life as just another tribe within the Khazar Confederacy. But what made them stand out was that instead of speaking just a Turkic language, they also spoke what is called a Finno-Ugric tongue. As the name implies, Finno-Ugric speakers lived around the very north of Europe, including modern Finland. Like their neighbours, the Slavs, we refer to them simply by their language because they lived in tribal societies. They had no state structures to give their people a specific name. The forests of Russia were not really conducive to state creation. Rather like the mountains of Anatolia and Armenia, they have bitterly cold winters and short, hot summers. Conditions that do not favour productive farming. Hence the need to turn to fur trapping to find a product that could be exchanged for food and the other essentials of life. I've seen two suggestions for how this group of Finno-Ugric speakers made their way to the steppes and became a respected tribe. One is that they simply migrated south looking for a better life, and when they arrive on the grasslands, they attached themselves to one of the existing groups and learnt their ways. The other explanation is perhaps more plausible and is certainly more interesting. In this version... Khazar tribes rode north in search of slaves. They scooped up a bunch of Finno-Ugric speakers, and instead of just selling them on, they took their women to be their wives. Their sons thus grew up with Finno-Ugric as their first language. Their mothers did all the child-rearing, while the fathers were off with the herds. Naturally, they learnt the Turkic tongue of the Khazars too, but within a couple of generations, you had tribes of men with a close-knit bond because they could all speak a language which their overlords could not. If true, this explanation could point to why Khan Boris accepted Slavic as the new language of his people. Perhaps intermarriage with Slav women had already led to a bilingual Bulgar aristocracy. We have almost no idea how the Magyars separated themselves from their Khazar rulers, but according to historian Mark Witto, it seems likely that the Magyars pushed west in the 830s under pressure from the aggressive Pechenegs, who we'll get to in a moment. 
The Magyars moved to the lands between the Crimea and the Danube. They'd reached the Carpathian Mountains and the effective end of the steppe. Behind them, the Pechenegs were causing enough trouble for the Khazars that they were able to live an effectively independent life from the Khanate. They remained nominally submissive to the Khan and modelled their new tribal hierarchy on the Khazar template. This is where the Magyars had reached when they entered our story in 895. Leo VI made a deal with them, ferried them across the Danube, and they ravaged Bulgaria. However, the Bulgar Khan Simeon responded by contacting the Pechenegs, who then attacked the Magyars. This should tell you a lot about how fearsome the Pechenegs were. Once the attack was underway, a large group of Magyar tribes decided to migrate rather than fight. They crossed the Carpathian Mountains onto what I've been calling the future Hungarian plain. This pocket of grasslands has been the home base for the Huns and the Avars, and now its final inhabitants have arrived. It meant driving herds of animals across slippery mountain passes and then fighting to dominate the new lands they'd arrived in. At that time, it was nominally Bulgar territory, but preoccupied with the Balkans, the Bulgarians weren't able to stop them. The Magyars would succeed in dominating their new homeland and will spend the next century raiding their neighbours to the south and to the west. The Pechenegs, or Patsinaks, as you may see them referred to, were the people who pushed west in the 830s into Khazar territory. They did speak a Turkic language and are one of a number of tribes being shunted forward by greater conflict further east along the steppes. The Pechenegs were tough and wild. They were at the opposite end of the steppe spectrum from the Khazars. They still lived a fully nomadic life and treated settled peoples with scorn. It seems likely that they defeated the Khazars in battle and overran the steppe lands that lay north of the Caucasus. The Khazars were wealthy enough to protect their home base between the Caspian and Black Seas, but they found the Pechenegs impossible to control. Check the maps from episode 111 if you'd like to see all this visually. The Pechenegs were not under the command of one ruler. They fought amongst one another for dominance of neighbouring tribes. So the Khazars could attempt to bring the nearer groups under their influence, but those further away were dangerous to tangle with. The new arrivals outnumbered and outmuscled the Magyars, and occupied their lands after they departed. Soon after these events, just as our narrative ended, the Romans made contact with the Pechenegs to try and secure them as allies against the Bulgars. The nomads were happy to accept Roman luxury goods, but they would prove to be unreliable allies. Without firm central control, it was difficult to hold effective negotiations, and other than bribery, the Byzantines had no carrots or sticks. 
The Pachenegs weren't interested in court titles or Christianity or Roman military support. Even handing over the silk and manufactured goods they demanded could be perilous. Merchants and envoys often complained that they did not feel safe in the steppelands. The nomads were used to robbing any strangers they came across, and presumably this happened on more than one occasion. But despite these uncertainties, when the narrative resumes, the Romans will attempt to forge an alliance with the Pechenegs. As they'd always done with the Khazars, the government in Constantinople wanted to make sure that those in charge of the northern Black Sea coast were on their side. In theory, the Black Sea offered an undefended backdoor into the Roman world. Hundreds of miles of empty coast led to waters which flowed directly to the Bosphorus. Fortunately for the Romans, no power capable of manning a navy reached its shores up till the 9th century. Khusro briefly threatened to during the wars in Lazica, but other than that, the steppe tribes and Caucasian peoples had never shown an interest in building warships. Now, however, the situation had changed. As you know, twice in the past 50 years, the Rus had appeared before Constantinople in fleets filled with armed men. The ninth century was the age of the Vikings. England, Ireland and France in the west suffered raids and invasions, while in the east, the Varangians, as they were known, colonized the Baltic and began using the river systems of Eastern Europe to raid and trade further south. It's not the concern of this podcast to discuss why they came, only that they did. The Byzantines were aware of them at the start of the 9th century, but their eyes only truly opened when a fleet appeared in 860 and sacked the suburbs of Constantinople. This was a terrible shock to the population. No seaborne attack had ever come from that direction, and the Rus who arrived were brutal. After colonizing the Baltic coasts, the Varangians had pushed south, establishing lordships over the local Slavs and Finno-Ugric peoples. Despite the less-than-promising farmlands they now controlled, the men from Scandinavia found the Russian river system to their liking. With their skill and speed at sailing, they quickly took control of the lucrative trade running down the Volga River toward the Khazars. With plenty of cash now filling their pockets, the Varangians began to fortify towns at strategic points along the rivers and brought more and more of the local inhabitants under their control. Those operating on the Volga, from the new towns Novgorod, Rostov and Muram, were the wealthiest. It seems it was they who decided to build fleets big enough to bypass Atal and go raiding the Caspian without Khazar permission. They then moved into the Black Sea to give the Byzantines a serious scare. I've put up another map to show the different trade routes. Communities were growing up on the Dnieper River too, at Smolensk, Polotsk, 
and Kiev. The Dnieper runs into the Black Sea, and so directly to Constantinople. However, the Dnieper has several impassable rapids, where boats have to be unloaded and carried by land. And as this river runs through the lands of the Pechenegs, you can see why it took the Varangians longer to turn this into a profitable route. Eventually, they would, though. And it's these nearer peoples, the Kievan Rus, who the Byzantines will have the most contact with. Though they were just as ferocious in their own way as the Pechenegs, the Byzantines would find it easier to deal with a mercantile, town-based people rather than the nomads. Plus, the Rus had ships, and that was a far more serious threat to the capital than distant steppe tribes. Just before our narrative closed, another fleet appeared at Constantinople, and Leo VI was forced to sign a trade agreement with them. We think this was the Kievan Rus. Their merchants were now welcome at Constantinople, and their warriors became handy mercenaries for the army. If the Rus were going to make the difficult Dnieper route profitable, then Roman gold was absolutely necessary. Though Varangian was the term that the Byzantines used to describe men from Scandinavia in general, the states they dealt with in Eastern Europe were known to them as the Rus. As with Bulgaria, the Scandinavians ruled over a majority Slav population. Though the energy and culture of the Northmen would rub off on their subjects, within the next century, Slavicization will take place. Slav names, beliefs, and language will take hold within the growing Rus state. If the 9th century saw the rapid development of the Bulgarian state, then the 10th will see an equally fast rise for the Rus. It will be they who deliver the knockout blow to the Khazars, and after that, the new written Slav language and liturgy will catch their eye as ties with Constantinople grow stronger. That's your update on the lands north of the Danube around 900 AD. In Constantinople, these developments were seen as fairly negative, if not a pressing concern. The Khazars had been a solid ally for a long time, but after the Rus attack of 860, it was pretty clear that they could no longer protect the Roman flank. The search had begun to find a new ally. The Magyars were in the wrong location for the Roman fleet to reach, the Pechenegs were hard to deal with, and the Rus navy represented an unwelcome competitor on the seas. The new century will demand more clever diplomatic manoeuvring from the Byzantines. As with developments in the West and the Balkans, the Romans were being forced to pay attention to far more neighbouring peoples than they had become accustomed to. Before I go, though, listener Kay recommends you check out The Vikings from Audible's Great Lecture series. If you're curious why Scandinavia suddenly produced so many able warriors and why they were so successful, then you can pick up this excellent academic audio series for free. Or perhaps you'd prefer to hear about The Vikings from a fellow podcaster, 
Audible also has Lars Brownworth's book about the Vikings, The Sea Wolves, though sadly not read by Lars himself. To pick up either of these or any of 100,000 other books for free, go to audibletrial.com forward slash tvcritic. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.